welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oakland Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, my name's Maureen. Um, I'm delighted to be part of the podcast today. Uh, I am a middle school English teacher at Moses Brown School in Providence, where I have been teaching for 17 years, and my pronouns are also she, her. Hi, I'm Mike, and uh, I use he and him. I am a high school English teacher. I've been teaching at South Kingstown High School for 31 years, which still amazes me to say that. I don't think I've done anything other than breathe for that long. I teach uh, I teach English. Um, as Last year, I was, uh, as far as I know, the first teacher in my building since I've been there 30 years who was teaching all four grades at the same time. I have also taught drama until we finally got someone who really knew how to teach it. I think that's it. All right. Thank you both for being here. I'm really excited that uh, you joined us. So a little bit later in the show, we will talk about your experience teaching and a little bit about the probably surreal experience of teaching this past year. Um, But before we get into that, we'll start the show as we always do with what have you all been reading? Partly thanks to the pandemic and partly just thanks to a guilty conscience that I, I usually don't read books nearly as much as I feel I should be. I have read more in the past year than I had uh, previously. I just yesterday morning finished reading Hamnet um, mm-hmm. by Maggie O'Farrell, which has probably gotten a lot of attention, deservedly so. Um, I have a thing. Of, I, I like reading about Shakespeare. Um, for those who don't know, Maggie O'Farrell is a contemporary novelist and memoirist. I, now I, I want to read her memoir called I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. Um, mm-hmm. But she uh, she has reimagined the marriage of William Shakespeare and his wife, usually known as Anne Hathaway, but she calls her Agnes because that's what she's named as in her father's will. Um, and in contrast to most of the you know, the, the historical record of Shakespeare and his wife and his family life is uh, really, really thin. So what literally you can read between the lines has led a lot of people to assume that it wasn't a happy marriage because he spent most of their 34 years, I think, married uh, apart from her. Um, but uh, the novel Hamnet actually imagines it as a truly loving marriage um, that gets tested by the death of their son. Hamnet is the name of their son. And um, obviously, it's pretty much the same. The names Hamlet and Hamlet were interchangeable in Shakespeare's time. So pretty much he gave the name of his son who died very young um, to the name of one of his most famous protagonists. And so the novel largely focuses on Agnes and the challenges of running a household, having a family, having a um, a husband who clearly has a a different interest in life than, than she does. Um, and also coping with the, the loss of a child um, and the, the trauma that inflicts on them and the testing it does to their marriage. So it's a beautiful novel, really fully imagines the characters, um, which is what I particularly love about it. And it's just, it's also just beautifully written. So before that, I, I read a novel called The Story of a Goat by a an Indian author named Perumal Murugan. He's Tamil. He writes in Tamil, not in um, Hindi. And it's one I picked up. It was, uh, it was a bookstore in Washington State. Um, two years ago. It was an employee recommendation. It was one of those that was on the shelf that said, our employees suggest staff staff recommendations. And um, it just, for some reason, appealed to me. And it's a very kind of simple, fable-like story about a goat. Um, it just kind of shamelessly anthropomorphizes 
her feelings. Um, she is long-suffering and comes to a bad end, as you expect of almost any farmyard animal. Um, but it's uh, fortunately, she is not mistreated by her owners who actually prize her. They consider her a miracle goat. And so there's at least that positivity to it. Um, but it's, and it, it's just clearly a kind, it's kind of an allegory of just a human suffering and, and in particular um, the oppression of women, but in the form of this very beautifully simply told story of this goat's life. I was sorry to mention before also that the book I read before that was a lot more challenging. It was also set in India. It's called We That Are Young. It's by um, an English writer of Indian descent named Preti Tanija, and it retells King Lear, making King Lear a modern day hotel mogul in India. Um, so sort of like the Donald Trump of India. And it's an incredible novel. It's really impressive. It's um, very richly imagined. The language is kind of over the top, very flamboyant, very rich. Um, I just felt like it was also kind of undisciplined. She needed she needed an editor. Um, it's almost 500 pages long. And there were times where even I just said, okay, I'm, I really want to know where this is going, but I'm tired of it. So, but well worth the time. It just, it took a lot of it. I'm a big Shakespeare fan, so I'll have to check out Hamnet, even though that's not my typical jam. I think I probably would enjoy it a lot. I would do want to say also that uh, two of those three I, I picked specifically because I did want to make it a, a point to go outside of my own, not so much comfort zone, but my own just identity in reading and to read more works in translation and more uh, works from cultures that are quite distinct from my own. Uh, Story of a Goat and We That Are Young both did that while still being familiar to me because I know Shakespeare and I like goats. <laughs> Those sound great. I definitely, um, Books on the Square is my local books bookstore. And I definitely, I remember having Hamnet in my hands at one point and then getting distracted by some other books. So I haven't read it yet, but it's on my, it's on my long list of books to read. It's too- I also understand it's, it's a great listen. Uh, my husband <gasps> just, just finished listening to it on audiobook and said he, it was beautifully read. Oh, that's a good sell. I love a good audiobook. Well, the I was going to offer two books, and the second one, which I'll actually do first now, based on what you're enjoying, Mike, um, you might like. Um, I just finished uh, a book called Speak Okinawa, and I'd never heard of this um, novelist before. Her name is Elizabeth Miki Bruna, um, and it's this memoir of um, a middle-aged woman, and it's her story growing up as um, as, as biracial. So her mother is from Okinawa, which to be honest, I knew very little about going into this novel. I knew a bit more from its military history than its cultural history. Um, and her mother is Okinawan and her father is American. And it's kind of a dual narrative that shares the story of the history of this land that her mother is from. And woven into that is her mother's story, her mother's upbringing, her past growing up on the island um, and her meeting her father. And then the other narrative is this young woman growing up in America in a very white town, but feeling quite different from those around her. And kind of as the as it progresses, you get a sense that when she's young, she strongly identifies as her father's daughter and wants to be everything um, white in the world around her. And then as she 
grows up and learns to kind of appreciate her mother and her mother's cultural background, um, she starts to, I think, more and more identify as biracial and even dual citizenship. Um, and eventually later in the story, gets the chance to travel to Okinawa with her mother to like meet her relatives. It was a quick read for me because the I, I love dual narratives. I love when you have like multiple stories going on and how thinking through how they connect and how um, the marriage of the stories helps you understand each story better. Um, so it read quickly for me, which is great because I don't know, Mike, at, at, you were saying that the pandemic has kind of increased your your reading um, output. I, I go up and down. Sometimes I feel like it does. And sometimes I feel like I hit a lull. Um, so this was a good book for me because it was something that I really couldn't put down because I, I wanted to find out what was happening. Um, and it was just kind of this intriguing story about what it means to be a biracial woman, you know, growing up in America and the, and the multiple pressures she experienced. So I really appreciated that one recently. And then the other book I want to recommend, which is probably one of my, maybe my favorites of the whole past year. And it's a book that I, I tried to read first and I kind of was like, meh, and I kind of put it down. And then I came back to it a few months later um, and it really grew on me. It's a, it's a book by T.J. Clune called The House on the Cerulean Sea. I think if you, if you go to a bookstore or a library, I think you might find it in the YA section, but I really think it's a book that could span generations. Um, it's um, a bit of fantasy, but reads it, it reads like you, you could step into the story and imagine it happening in the human world just as much as a fantastical world. And it's the story of um, an orphanage. Um, but it's it's not a typical orphanage. Um, it's an orphanage for for magical creatures, and um, these particular magical creatures are kind of castoffs. They are um, even more magical than the average creature, and they kind of because of that they frighten people. So so the orphanage that they're sent to is on basically the edge of the world. It's as far away from from humans as could possibly be, um, and and and. To their, to their benefit, there's a really loving, kind man who is in charge of them and takes really good care of them. Um, but the Office of Magical Creatures is very concerned about them um, and the person who's taking care of them. So they send an agent to inspect the orphanage. Um, and the agent arrives um, himself fearful and scared of uh, the power of these magical creatures and what they might do and how they might terrorize the humans in particular. Um, but the beauty of the story, as you could probably imagine, is what I'm getting to, um, is that the inspector finds that, you know, they're actually not to be scared of at all. They're just young creatures who are um, new to the world and need to be cared for like we all do. Um, so it really, for me, was kind of the book that I needed during this pandemic, right, to, to feel like, ah, oh, the goodness of a story about like caring for each other, being inclusive, being kind. Um, it, it just is kind of beautiful. So yeah, those are just two very different books. <laughs> I wasn't even sure if I, what I was going to book talk today, but those are two that I, I definitely have enjoyed recently and would, would recommend for different reasons. Yeah, I think a while back, someone had recommended the Cerulean Sea. The House of the Cerulean Sea, yeah. 
And but they just kind of like casually mentioned that they had read it. They were like, oh, fantasy and it's cozy and whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah. sounds nice. I'll get to it. But I think I kind of want to like move it up on my list now because that sounds wonderful and kind of like the thing I need right now. I'm in a bit of yeah. a reading slump myself. I, I've found that I've gone weeks where it's like, yes, I want to read this book and, and be distracted and weeks where I'm like, I don't have the bandwidth to even look at books right now. So yeah. I definitely can relate to the, the ebb and flow that's happened this past year in terms of reading it's funny i'm looking over what i've read over the past year and i haven't read anything comforting (laughs) um it's like i don't know i think i'm I'm, i've been seeking out either you know really existentialist stuff or really bleak stuff i mean the closest i can i can come to something i read that actually made me feel kind of uplifted and hopeful was uh, the first of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies. Um, I just thought it's, it's, it's high time I read that. There are three of them and I read the first one. Um, and that, of course, you know, it's just, it's so elevating and, and so inspiring. Yeah. Um, even though, of course, there's a lot of bleakness, but um, just to, to know what he was able to make of himself. I mean, he's, he is such an amazingly decent person, even when talking about the owners who wronged him and who he had one, um, the wife of one of his slave masters was very kind to him at first. And then she sort of turned against him in all of it. He, he depicts every single person he describes in such a humane way. He, he credits them with having inner lives that matter to them. And there's one person he actually gets around to really kind of demonizing and saying, this man had absolutely no redeeming features whatsoever, but everybody else he's, you know, he extends to them, the, the courtesy of treating them as full human beings, despite the fact that they hadn't extended the same to him. So that was inspiring. I guess I, I see depression in literature. I watch TV for um, escapism. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I was going to say, even all through all the slumps, so I'm usually watching some type of TV show. So what have you been watching that's been your, uh, your comfort watching or your not comfort watching? <laughs> oh my gosh. Good question. I um so uh, deep dark secret of mine. I am a big Survivor fan. Uh, I've watched most of the seasons since it first came around, and I've gone back to watching seasons that I've already watched before. And I know how they end, but I'll watch them anyway. Uh, I've 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 tried out for Survivor a few times. And wow, I, really? Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. I, I tell my students that you know someday I. I swear I, I will be on that show. I won't give up trying. Um, it's totally ridiculous. And I know it will never happen, but I'm going to try anyway. Um, and I can imagine myself writing a letter to my uh, my principal, you know, like, uh, sorry, I'll need three months off of school because uh, I'll be on an island. <laughs> Talk about escapism, right? Like, <laughs> I'll be running around an island competing for a million dollars. Um, so that's been, yeah, that's been my escape. I love getting caught up in the very silly melodrama of the game and thinking through the, um, you know, the, the deception, uh, you know, they're, they're so phony to each other's faces. And then, you know, all the strings they are pulling behind the scenes, um, and the kind of the physical feat of trying to survive that kind of situation, even though it's obviously 
very produced. Um, there's a lot happening behind the scenes there. So that has been my recent, um, my recent TV escape, but I will add, um, I recently started watching uh, a documentary with my students that I love, um, and it's called The Dawn Wall, and it's a documentary of some climbers who are attempting a um, to summit a, a rock that no one has ever climbed before, the route that they're taking. So um, I think it might be on Netflix or Hulu, uh, but it's called The Dawn Wall, um, and it's by it's about this climber, Tommy Caldwell, who has faced some extreme adversity in his life. So the kids really get into it, um, and ultimately you watch him through these, you know, he's, he spent, he spends weeks trying to climb this thing that no one has ever climbed before. Um, and the kids are kind of like glued to it, wondering if he's going to make it. So, um, those are, yeah, those are two of my recent, like what I'm enjoying watching with my students. And then something I enjoy <laughs> at home when the day is over and I can just zone out in my survivor space. You talk about watching things with your students and, and Survivor together just made me remember that my like seventh and eighth grade social studies teacher would show us the amazing race as part of our geography lessons. And I got really into it, like watching it, like, you know, like, oh, I think it was like once a week, like Fridays, he would be like, second half of class, we're going to watch an episode of the amazing race. And yeah, I would get really into like that. I would want to know what happened. And I, and I thought it was really interesting that they are able to show all these diverse cultures and all these different parts of the world through this like globe trotting adventure show with a little sliver of melodrama because they all are competing against each other. So like everyone trying to get on a flight to the next place first or, or train or wherever. Um, I hadn't thought about that in ages. And then you were saying that reminded yeah, me of yeah, yeah. It's pretty ridiculous, but I teach middle school. So I live in a world of pretty ridiculous all the time. <laughs> so it, kind of, it, it kind of fits <laughs> with my life. I've um, never really taken to uh, reality TV shows, except for cooking shows. I don't know. They, they don't, yeah. you know, the cooking competition shows. Um, that's as close as I come to reality TV. So I did. We did comfort ourselves for much of the past year with the Great British Bake Off, which I can't get enough of. That's one where I'll, I I will willingly go back to old seasons and rewatch them, um, just because they're all such lovely people and they're so nice to each other. So yeah, a, a lot of cooking shows this past year. And then the other thing, um, I so at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we watched a lot of theater streamed and including a lot of Shakespeare. And and it just occurred to me recently um, that that really tapered off by about you know about a few months ago, like half halfway through, like you know sometime in the summer. And I think it was because um, it felt in the early months like this is temporary. I can satisfy my theater fix by watching streamed theater and recorded theater, and it'll hold me over until you know the summer or the fall. And didn't realize no, it's going to be you know a year and a half. I did actually, I was really thrilled this past weekend. I got to see my first live theater performance in 14 months, uh, the Wilbury Theater Group, mounted a production of Samuel Beckett's Crap's Last Tape, which is a one-man show. Um, so it didn't require a lot of, you know, it's easy. it was easier to do with social distancing, both for the cast and for the audience. And it was just a thrill. It was a fantastic production. So um, turning to, uh, again, real escapist kind of TV, the two that I've been recommending to everybody are uh, on Netflix, uh, French comedy drama. Netflix calls it Call My Agent. It's in French, it's 10%. 
which is French for 10%. And it's about a talent agency for um, French movie stars, mostly. And it's just, it's French pastry. It's just, it's so witty and charming. And it does, you know, it deals with some serious issues of sexism and, and cultural appropriation and, and things like that. Um, but always with a completely light touch. And, um, and so if you don't mind reading subtitles, which sometimes go, because it's a comedy where they talk really fast, sometimes the subtitles go by too fast to read. Um, but it's, I, I realized after really like stopping the DVR multiple times or the, the recording lots of times to watch, to, to catch, you know, to back it up, say, what did they say? I realized if they're talking that fast, I probably wouldn't have caught it if, even if I understood it. So it's just, they're talking fast. That's all you need to know. It's, um, and the characters are so vividly developed um, that you, you just, you love all of them, even when some of them act, you know, do, do terrible things to each other. Um, so it's a lot of fun. So that's one of the recommendations I make. And then also uh, we got into watching The Flight Attendant with Kili Cuoco. Um, it's based on a Chris Bojalian novel. And that was another, you know, it's uh, about a, um, a flight attendant who's um, a, a good time girl, a, party girl who um, drinks too much, doesn't acknowledge to herself until later in the series that she actually has a drinking problem. Um, and, and it does confront that seriously. And it not, there's this sort of plot line throughout of the damage that it has done to her relationships, um, in, in particular with her family, but also with her friends, that she's just in complete denial about. Um, and those kind of surface more and more as it goes on. So there's, there is this very serious undercurrent but it's also, it's just this international spy thriller. Basically, the, the setup is um, she wakes up in a Bangkok hotel room with a dead body next to her. Um, and she has no idea how it happened. She, she's, she, she does say to you know, her friends that she admits, you know, when she, and then she, you know, she escapes. She gets back on the plane, um, sneaks out of the hotel and gets back on her plane back to the States. And she tells her best friend that, you know, well, yes, I know. Yes, I sometimes black out, but I don't kill people. I'm not that kind of a bad girl. And she basically kind of tries to solve the mystery that keeps branching off into more and more um, skullduggery. And, uh, and it's, all, it's just, it's great fun at the same time that it has all this seriousness to it. And plus, you know, it's all about people traveling all over the world. So that was kind of fun to watch. Some like vicarious yes. travel. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's part of my survivor thing too. Like get me to yeah. an island. <laughs> <laughs> and where the dangers are really contrived it's like yes you know, yes you know, it's uh they're they're constructed on purpose to be dangers that you know will eliminate some contestants but they just get to fly home exactly and and yeah i would i would put up with eating rice day after day if it meant that i could just lie on the beach for several hours in a row it's all right <laughs> yeah that sounds like a pretty good trade yeah um so this past weekend, I got into a real rut of just like rewatching things, particularly rewatching things to show my boyfriend. So we watched two of Eliza Schlesinger's comedy specials, which I had seen before, but I wanted him to see. But I was having trouble remembering which one I really liked, which is why I was like, I think I think I remember this one was really good. We'll watch this one. And I was like, okay. I enjoyed that the second time, but that wasn't the one I wanted to show you. And then I was like, oh, okay, this one's the one I want to show you because this seems to be the earliest one that's on Netflix. And then we watched that and that wasn't the one either. And then I figured it out that I was like, oh, it's her first one, which they took off of Netflix for some reason. Because she in the second special that we watched had referred to something to her first special. And I was like, oh, that bit isn't in this special either. I'm, I messed it up again. <laughs> 
but I still enjoy that. I still think she's very funny. Um, but it's also funny listening to comedy specials that are even just like five years old. I was like, wow, this is really stuck in like the gender binary. Men are like this. Women are like this kind of comedy, which I think she moved away from a bit as it's crazy to think that even five years can pass and some jokes don't age as well as you would have thought they did. But it still was funny. And then I, we also watched Legally Blonde because he had never seen it. And I was like... This movie seems on the surface like it's going to be a really like stereotypical chick flick, but there's like there's there's something else there that I think the message is overall very positive and like somewhat feminist. And again, there were parts of that that didn't age as well as I was remembering. So it wasn't perfect, but ultimately I felt like the the feminist message of like <laughs> Being hyper feminine and being blonde does not necessarily mean that you're like an idiot and that liking those things isn't equated with being lesser than, which I think is a lesson that we could take even into now. I still find myself watching that movie sometimes, you know, like, I love how, you know, at first she goes after him and then along the way she realizes, no, I'm doing this for me. Right? Like, that's a good exactly. takeaway from that film, right? Kind of a lesson in, in why we do what we do. It's funny, I've never seen all of the original movie, but I know the musical because when I ran the drama program at South Kingstown, that was actually at the top of my list of possible musicals to produce. And then the year I was planning to do it, East Greenwich Drama Club did it and the licensing companies won't allow to adjoining school districts to do the same musical in the same year anyway. And plus, you know, who wants to steal each other's thunder? And then URI did it the following year. And they, do, they do amazing musicals it's one thing another thing that i've really missed this year so um so i've seen it like four or five times in different iterations um but only the musical version so. mm-hmm. and i love reese witherspoon i watch it <laughs> yeah see i was watching the movie and i was like oh yeah they made a musical of this didn't they i should look up the soundtrack i've been meaning to do that so maybe i will now now that i reminded myself about how much i enjoyed the movie it's a it's a good musical so, <laughs> a lot of fun and we'll return to the show after a quick break. An online archive featuring keyword searchable local historical newspapers, including the Cranston Herald, is now available online to Cranston Public Library cardholders. The archive includes documents from 1885 to 1977. Additional newspaper archives from 1977 to 2016 are available separately from inside the library only. This archive is brought to you by Advantage Preservation and funded by the Champlin Foundation. Visit cranstonlibrary.org databases to find out more. Cranston Public Library is pleased to bring poetry to our patrons all without leaving the comfort of home. No internet, computer, or smartphone required. A recorded poem read by a CPL staff member will be available every Tuesday afternoon. To listen, call 401-900-1090 and be sure to check back weekly to hear what's new. For more information about this service, please visit cranstonlibrary.org slash on the line.
So uh, without further ado, we here at Downtime wanted to extend our appreciation to you and all of the teachers out there and everything that you've done. For me, I think a big takeaway from everything that happened is how important teachers are in the, in the lives of our young people. So, so thank you to start out. Thank you for all the things that you've done for your students this past year. Um, so I guess we'll begin at the beginning. What was it like to get told that you can't come back into school and, and how did things go from there? Yeah, Moses Brown, uh, been around for a long time and our students come from 50 miles away, 10 miles away, one mile away. Um, so I can vividly remember last March, it was one of my first years as the education chair and I, I was excited to um, create a new event and it was to offer a space for teachers to come together and um, talk about that year's book, which was Rising by Elizabeth Rush. So that was my big project that I was so excited for. And I remember this, talk about rising, this rising anxiety across the world about what was happening and thinking to myself, huh, I wonder if we're even going to hold this event. Um, and then the day came and I was like, okay, I, I, school's still open. I, I guess we're going to do it. And, uh, and we held the event and about 25 teachers and librarians came from across the state and, um, and we weren't shaking hands. Like that was the thing that we were, we were concerned enough about what was happening, but we did that awkward social dance around like, okay, well, welcome, but we'll keep our distance. Um, and it was kind of this inaugural event to get teachers together, to have a space to talk about books and um, content that we're interested in and how we can engage our students and the issues that we face along the way to support each other. Um, and then the next day I came to school and it was, it felt real. Like there was the real conversation about, uh, we think school is closing this week and we're probably not going to come back. And in the private school world, um, we have our school vacation in March. That school closed that Friday. Um, we were off for two weeks. So most of us were canceling vacations or changing plans or trying to kind of reach out to each other and our students about like, what do you need? What's even happening, right? Like it was so confusing. Um, and then basically vacation turned into how do I teach online? Like like things were, were happening so fast and I had to kind of um, get my head around uh, Google Meet, Zoom. I think I took one education class online and it was a hybrid of in-person and online. So I was very new to anything um, in terms of like hybrid or distance learning style. So wow, I felt like my life got flipped upside down in, in terms of my career. And then add on to that, I have two young daughters at home who were six and eight. I had to kind of almost have a come to Jesus moment of like, um, okay, either you dig deep and you work really hard to figure out how you're going to do two jobs at once, both of which I felt like I've never done before. <laughs> so, so last spring was um, a bit of a nightmare, um, but also find a way just to tackle every day as it comes and um, be open to relearn how I do everything. And, you know, like in any teaching along the way, you figure it out, right? You figure out this trick that worked, this trick that didn't. 
And I relied a lot on my colleagues and my students. Like there was a lot of really open, honest conversation about like, what's working, what's not. We were due to teach this really complicated um, racial justice unit. And I was like, I don't even know, I don't know how to do this without having students in my classroom. So we pivoted. That was the big word, right? Like we pivoted and um, I ended up teaching A Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was the joy that we needed, right? Like it kind of like we found these ways to just through like read aloud, watching film together, talking about the silliness of Puck um, that, that helped us keep going even through distance learning. So you know, gosh, it feels like so long ago, to be honest, as I think back to last spring. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy to have come as far as we have since then. But I certainly have a lot of, of takeaways from it. One of the biggest ones being like, sometimes you just have to figure it out as you go. Even if going into it, I had like, I really had no idea how I was going to do it. And I had to like wake up every day being like, it's a new day. Let's let's see what today brings. Um, and like I said, you know, teaching middle school, it's I, I live in kind of a ridiculous world all the time. So I tried to just embrace that even at home. Like I remember one one day I was teaching a Midsummer Night's Dream and we were learning about Titania. It was some big te- scene with Titania, and I was like, I think I'm just gonna wear my wedding dress to class today. So I just like <laughs> I just like found my wedding dress, put it on got my tiara out of the box and like waltzed into the room with my dress on, which my students are like, what is happening here? Why is my teacher wearing this white dress? Um, And I, you know, that was kind of the spirit that I just tried to embrace along the way. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm going to try to do my best and figure it out as I go and have like endless compassion and empathy for everything the kids are going through. And that took a lot of like real conversations about how to how to care for each other through that. Like, yeah, I mean, that's my favorite part of school. I, and probably why I teach middle school. I love coming to school every day and being like in this world with kids. And like, we have a ton of fun and um, losing that was so hard. So trying everything possible to like recreate it in whatever virtual way we could um, to kind of get through it. And then, yeah, we reopened. Most faculty were on committees to reopen. So the school supported us. They funded summer committee work to figure out how we're going to do this. And in the middle school, we totally restructured. Um, We have smaller groups. Um, We built a whole new schedule. Um, In some cases, we added classes to student schedules um, and yeah, like we reopened on the day that we were supposed to reopen and we haven't closed in the middle school. The the other divisions have closed for, um, you know, COVID cases, but somehow we have stayed in person and I kind of pinch myself. Like it's kind of remarkable um, and a bit of a miracle that we've been able to, for the most part, enjoy like being in person. But, um, but in some ways it's really weird, you know, like this is, it's not school as normal. We're all masked and we are in these smaller learning groups and we don't cross integrate the kids like we normally do. Um, which as awkward as it's been has also had its benefits. So what I love about this year is that I find with the kids being in these small groups, the groups have become like little families and, you know, it sounds kind of cliche, right? But they, <laughs> in, in a very like honest, real depiction of what a family is, you know, like everyone's personalities are that much more um, uh, developed because 
we're together all the time. They're in these small groups. So um, we've had to become like really just more even honest and open with each other than usual. Like if someone's doing something annoying, hey, that's annoying me. Can you stop it? <laughs> you know, like sometimes it's hard to do in a family or in a classroom with someone. Um, and I find the kids have really built these like pretty tight bonds with each other. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, where we go. We have, we've got a month, a month and a half left of school and we're, we're starting a project right now to kind of reflect back on the year. And I'm really curious to see what, what some of their takeaways are going to be, but I'm kind of coming out of this year feeling like pretty blown away by how many changes we've had to make and how for the most part, many of them have worked. Um, and you know, I'll be honest, I'm pretty exhausted. <laughs> like I have my, I have my eyes on the prize of summer vacation and knowing that's about, a, yeah, like I said, a month and a half away, that's going to, that's going to help me get through, um, the final weeks. But I tend to be someone with a lot of energy. I lean on that to kind of work through those tougher moments. Um, and yeah, I try to celebrate the small wins. Like every day we're in school feels like a win. I get to be around people. And, you know, I mean, I imagine you can relate, Mike, like the, the joy of school is getting to be in classrooms with kids. I think my experience has been almost like the obverse of yours. And also, by the way, I just want to tip my hat to you as a mother of young children, too. You know, I don't have children myself unless you count our house full of dogs, um, which is Three at the moment, it was until a couple of weeks ago, it was four, but we lost our, our eldest, um, but she was old. It was her time. We feel really, in some way, relieved that we were able to be here for it. And actually, I could say that was one of the silver linings of the past year is that um, we spent a lot more time with this dog in the past year than we would have normally. Like every weekend, we weren't going anywhere. We were home on the couch watching movies together. And realizing that that's that's how we got to spend our last months with this beloved dog um, <laughs> was was special. But I have I normally have no idea how people who teach are also able to raise, especially young children. Um, and under the pandemic conditions, I I think it's a miracle. So you're a miracle worker. If, <laughs> if you and your family are all still oh, alive. Um, if, <laughs> Congratulations. You deserve enormous credit. You just great kudos for that. Um, my experience was that last spring was, uh, was certainly in retrospect now compared to this year. Last year was a breeze um, last spring. Um, I've been doing a lot of um, video lessons anyway and flipping my classroom for a number of activities. So it was a pretty easy segue into what I was required to do to um, stay in touch with my students. And also because it was, you know, we we're already almost three quarters of the way through the year. Our administration was very accommodating to the teachers in terms of, of coverage, for example, just saying, you know, we had a week off that was our vacation that we spent with conferencing online with our colleagues, establishing um, priorities, saying, OK, you're not going to get through everything that's on the curriculum. Now, identify what your priorities are going to be within each department and focus on that. And so. You know, I felt like kind of lucky that the major assessment, major uh, assignment that my department had agreed on for each of my grade levels, I had already gotten started on. So the research paper for my juniors, we had already started it. And it was just finish that, just walk them through it. And that was pretty easy. Um, I made a couple of on-the-fly changes. I was going to, in my 10th grade class, we were going to do Othello. But no, I'm not going to try Othello long distance, uh, you know, remote learning and all that. So instead, I decided to switch to um, the color purple. And it's happened to overlap with 
the uh, killing of George Floyd and the start of the protests that just seemed like the perfect text to be doing at that time. Um, you know, it kind of felt like a breeze. We had a, our schedule was such that um, I was basically only teaching online till about noon. And that's what the end of last year was like. And I thought, oh, yeah, OK, I'm you know, doing a lot of prepping to stay on top of this. But it wasn't that different from what I'd already done this year. There's been almost no upside. It feels like it's just dreary. Um, Maureen, you mentioned about the, the the sense of family you've been able to have with some of your classes. It may have something to do with the the difference in ages as well. That high school students are just less inclined. And first of all, our students um, have the option whether or not to be virtual learners or in person learners. They're supposed to register as such at the beginning of each quarter, but if they are registered as a face to face learner, but just checking online. Um, I have in each of my classes, I have no more than one or two or three students who are registered as virtual learners. But on any given day, there are some days when um, I've had all but one or two students um, check in online. Many of them, you know, they'll do the work, you know, they'll ask questions. If I try to have any kind of conversation or discussion with them, they'll respond, but very hesitantly. Interactions are very strained. Um, but I have a number probably, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% in every class who I can't tell whether they're actually even there. They sign in and I never hear from them. They never respond. Um, and I have a number who will just disappear partway through the period. So they get recorded as present, but they're not really there. And then I always notice at the end of the, the period or at some point before the, the final bell, if I tell the online learners, I said, guys, you know, I'm all done with the you know full class instruction. You can sign out now if you want to. And they're all signed out of there instantly. Wow. It's like they've just been waiting for the cue that they don't have to be checked. They don't have to be online anymore. And yeah. they here, but they haven't done anything else to indicate that they're alive. So yeah. it's been no fun at all. Um, but what, a couple of silver linings I can say is um, the kids have been kind. They've been kind to each other. They've been kind to their teachers. They've been very forgiving. I'm getting a lot. You know, I, I'm a terribly slow grader. I, you know, and the kids never quite wrap their minds around the fact that if I've collected a set of 25 essays this Friday, they are not going to be graded over the weekend. <laughs> I take minimally 15 minutes each, just, you know, calculate how much time you're talking about it's going to take me. So I'm always behind in the grading. And normally I'll have, you know, kids who just, you know, at least they need me, they'll, they'll ask regularly. Now they're just, you know, they just, they're very tolerant. They're very, you know, they're nice about it. And same with my colleagues. I mean, people have been, for the most part, really understanding of one another's challenges. Um, one thing I'm always trying to remind myself of is that you know, I know that some of my students are not following through or not you know, playing along because their lives are really difficult right now. But I don't know which ones. You know, they won't tell you. And so I know that, well, some of my students are just slacking or just, you know, hanging on, just coasting. It's because they can get away with it. And others, it's because that's the best they can do right now. I give them all the benefit of the doubt because I don't want to be the one who, who drives somebody over the edge because I wasn't as sympathetic as I could have been. So, so that's part of it too. I mean, I have a reputation as being, you know, a, a tough grader and someone with high standards. And I feel like I, I feel guilty about trying to have, you know, having such high expectations for my students' achievement when I have no idea for many of them how difficult it is for them to even show up, much less rise to my expectations for them. So um, I'll be really, really glad when this is over. <laughs> so just because I want to get it straight. So um, South Kingstown is still on a hybrid model. Yeah. I mean, we've been basically, the, the teachers have all been in the building from the first weeks of school. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And we actually, we never had to shut down anything, which I'm really glad for. I'm, I am glad we came back because if I had been doing all of this, also just sitting where I am right now in my desk in my home office the whole year, um, that would have been even more depressing. Every time we come back from vacation, every time we uh, switch our schedule, so I see students who, because we've also had um, learning sort of like what you described as the changes in your schedule, so that we're basically trying to pod students as much as possible so that they're, they don't cross into different groupings. So I only see half of my classes at a time for any given stretch of the calendar. Mm -hmm. So all first quarter, I only saw my period one through four classes. And then quarter mm -hmm. two is all my period five through eight classes. So every time we switch back, I say, I'm so happy to see you guys. And when we have another a kid who has not been coming into the into the classroom showing up and I get to meet that person. And it's, it's so nice to see you as a real person. So hopefully mm -hmm. it'll make all of us more appreciative when yeah. things get back to normal of how precious the normality is. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I can't say that I've had much fun. And that frankly, you know, given the drudgery that often constitutes so much of what you have to do as a teacher you can count on having fun a yeah. lot of the time though that being in a room with young people and getting them excited about mm -hmm. what it is you're teaching and sharing a laugh with them is you know there there's real pleasure to be had in that that warms the soul and there's been so little of that this year that I just want to get through it yeah that's it. That's the joy of the job is is the interaction we get to experience on a daily basis. And that was the big hit that I took last spring was like, how do I do this job minus the joy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a big crisis that I had to kind of work through and figure out. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, nice to see their faces on Zoom, but not the same. I mean, I had actually, in some ways, I had more more occasions for joy in the spring because I had a couple of kids who actually really blossomed, who did really well in the remote learning, um, who had not done as well in face-to-face uh, -face learning. One of my stars um, at the end of last year, she was a student I'd gotten along with pretty well, but it was, you know, often hot and cold. And she, um, she had a learning disability and she was very mm -hmm. self-conscious about it. Like anytime we try to offer her uh, the accommodation that her IEP entitles her to, and that we knew would be a benefit to her, um, she would get angry. Well, when she wasn't actually in front of other students every day, mm -hmm. she was much more relaxed about responding to whatever offer of, of accommodation or help that we gave her. And she got really excited about what we were reading and she would, she would hang around my um, Google Meet classroom after class was over to keep talking about the book. And every time I see her in the hall, every time I see her at school this year, she says she's having a great year. It's like that, you know, realizing that, you know, mm -hmm. she had the capacity, um, mm -hmm. which was unlocked because of the circumstances last year. Yeah. Seems to have carried over this year because she, she yeah. assures me every time I see her, she says, I'm having a great year. So I had a little of that. Happens now and then. Keeps you going. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful note to leave off on and, and the kind of the the overarching feeling I'm getting from both of your experiences is that if the if the main thing we take away from this experience is to be kind to each other and to and to have empathy and, and grace for other people, I think that is amazing and that at least there was something good out of a lot of bad. Yeah, definitely. It, uh, and I would also say learn, you know, have learned how resilient people can be ourselves and a lot of our students. Definitely. So um, I wrap up the show with a segment that we call The Last Chapter, where we discuss a bookish or library related question, uh, just to chat about it for a little bit. And I thought I would come up with a question that's a little more thematic to this episode. 
to ask you guys if there is a teacher from your school experience that you are really appreciative that you had. I'm going to, I'm, I'm thinking, um, back to my second grade teacher. So I went to a very small Catholic school in Barrington called St. Luke's school. And, um, I'm thinking of Mrs. Drury because, um, I had a moment in second grade where a lot of elementary schoolers find themselves, uh, where you have to go to the bathroom really badly. And, uh, oh gosh, I found myself in a moment where the, I had my hand raised and the teacher wasn't calling on me. And, I was a rule follower. So if the teacher didn't say I could go to the bathroom, I wasn't leaving to go to the bathroom and you know what happened. So I remember this moment recently because the same thing happened to my daughter last week at school. And um, she was in the bathroom and is dealing with the situation and she's in first grade. So of course, when this happened, she started crying and she didn't know what to do because she's standing there in the bathroom all by herself. And one of our um, school teachers heard her crying, came into the bathroom, helped her through it. Um, and, uh, you know, I was talking with her about it afterwards. And I said, wow, um, Anya, who's one of my daughters, I said, you are so lucky to have such a kind, caring teacher who can hear you and know what you need. Um, and I thanked the teacher afterward and was brought back to my own second grade experience, thinking about how some of the best teachers are just there for you when you need them. Even if you're not directly asking for help, they can see or hear some distress that you have and suddenly, sometimes magically show up. So I've, I've been thinking about that a lot the past couple of weeks um, and thankful for those people in my life who have shown up when I didn't even know that I needed it. <laughs> and not just in second grade, but every year since then. <laughs> Um, I, I was, you know, asked the question, I think when I was applying for my first teaching jobs decades ago, um, you know, who's the teacher who inspired you or teacher you're most grateful to. And, um, I still give the same answer I did back then. My, my ninth grade earth science teacher, Mr. Sigda, um, at, um, Memorial Junior High School uh, in Huntington Station, New York, um, who was extremely knowledgeable, really competent. He, he was always on top of his game. But the thing that he did that I always loved was say, I don't know. And, and very often he turned it into a learning experience. Say, I don't know. Let's look it up. Or let's, let's see if we can do an experiment to answer that question. And when I entered teaching myself, um, I remembered the experience of that, how much it meant to me to have a teacher who could have had as big an ego as anybody because he was really good. He was really smart, but who knew that his ego was not involved in him being able to answer every question or pretend he did. I had him the same year I had an English teacher who refused to acknowledge he didn't know something, so he would make stuff up, stuff that I knew was wrong. Um, like trying to tell us that Shakespeare made a mistake when he had um, Brutus's slave boy sing while playing the lute, because the lute, of course, is a like a flute. It's just a little flute, and you can't sing and play it at the same time. And I knew, you know, so I had an English teacher who's like that, but I had a science teacher who just regularly say, I don't know that. Mm. And you can be a good teacher and admit that you don't know how to do something. And this year, especially, yes, been very reassuring to know that, okay, I, there are so many things I can't do, I couldn't do right this year. Um, and, you know, I have permission to, to, to know, well, that doesn't mean I'm a failure as a teacher. 
because goodness knows Mr. Sigda told us over and over multiple times a week, I don't know. And <laughs> he was one of the best teachers I ever had. So I'm grateful for him for setting that um, up for me. I love that. Yeah, that's definitely a great skill to teach students and to show students that, you know, it's okay to not know things. That's how we learn is we, mm-hmm. we start off by saying that we don't know something and have mm-hmm. a desire to find that out. The teacher I'm really grateful for is the teacher who encouraged me to become a librarian. He was my 11th grade English teacher. And if uh, he had not had us do an assignment where we research a future career, I don't know if I ever would have ended up here. I I spent a lot of my childhood in, in young adulthood where people are like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was just like, I don't know. It just seemed like there was, there was such a world of possibility I didn't want to choose. And then by the time I reached junior year, I knew that I loved writing and that I loved books. But I was like, how do you make that into a career? And so I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And then that project showed me that I was not extroverted enough to be a journalist. I didn't think that I really had a personality that was going to mesh well with that career. So I was like, I want to change what I'm researching. I don't want to research journalism anymore. I want to research librarianship. And he was like, that's fantastic. You'll love it. They'll teach you secret winks. You'll be part of the secret librarian club. And I, and he's like, and I love that for you. Um, so I like to tell that story because it was, uh, I think it's a fun story. And yeah, I, I, the rest was history from then. The, the, the laser focused path was librarianship and I ended up here. So thank you, Mr. Haney from Situate Junior Senior High School. So we're shouting out our schools. <laughs> That's awesome. I love our librarians. They keep us happy. So go Taylor. <laughs> Thank you. And go school librarians. I, I I very early on realized that I did that was not the path I wanted to go on, but school librarianship is so important. And so I, I encourage school districts to prioritize keeping librarians in schools and they so important and have such a great impact on students. You're here. so thank you both for joining me today for this wonderful conversation and thank you for all the work you do for the future citizens of this country and thank you everyone for listening uh if you want to reach out to us here at downtime you can do that via email at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org and if you're feeling generous please go rate and review it helps people find the show and Again, thank you for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Martha Boxenbaum, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts, connect with CPL on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. I just want to say thank you to the teachers at Eden Park, Parkview, and Crankston East. I'm very grateful for what they do for our children. I appreciate all you do.